You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Stories from Real Life. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and I have the pleasure of being joined by presidential historian Lewis Ben Smith for this special President's Day edition. He also becomes the first guest to appear on this show on two non-consecutive episodes. I guess that makes him the Grover Cleveland of Stories from Real Life guest. Lewis, thanks for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. It's good to be here. So today, as I just mentioned, we're going to talk about the president. Well, we will not discuss recent ones because it's an election year and I don't need that kind of drama. So let's just say the cutoff year is 2000. So we had, okay. So we had two presidents in the 18th century. So we can talk about them plus the ones in the 19th and 20th century. All those are fair game. So with that in mind, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I said, sounds good. Okay. So with that in mind, who do you consider to be your top five presidents and why do you consider them to be so? All right. Well, you know, top spot among historians is nearly always given to one of three. It will either be Lincoln, Washington, or Franklin Roosevelt. But I will always put Abraham Lincoln in the top slot. I mean, he saved America from the gravest existential threat in our history He presided over America's bloodiest war, and yet he bore no malice or rancor towards those who started it. Uh, He was a man of remarkable compassion. He was uh, had the soul of a poet. He was just a remarkable person all the way around and remarkably enough, completely self-made one year of schooling in his entire life. And yet he produced things like the second inaugural of the Gettysburg Address that are just timeless in their beauty and also was a remarkably skilled politician. I mean, his ability to get what he wanted done in the face of opposition from his own party and opposite parties and sometimes within his own cabinet was uncanny. And he did it all without ever losing his decency or his humanity. I mean, he was not just our greatest president. I think he was, for my money, the greatest American that ever lived. Wow, that's high praise. All right, yeah. so here's a question I just thought of off the off the top of my head as you were talking. Um, obviously, um, Lincoln, you talked about him being a skilled politician, and and we he also is known for having a team of rivals um, in his cabinet. What do you think? How do you think history could have been different if he had had rather than choosing Johnson as his vice president, he had had Grant, for instance? Oh. Now, I don't know that Grant would have taken it at that point because the war was still going on. The war was still raging and Grant was needed at the front. But I think Lincoln's one great mistake as president was allowing Johnson to be named as his VP candidate. Uh, Because Johnson, as you know, is generally rated as one of America's all-time worst presidents and and also could not have been a worse man for the moment in which he found himself. And Lincoln, in his first term, had a vice president from Massachusetts named Hannibal Hamlin, who was a committed abolitionist and and much closer to Lincoln in his ideas. And I understand why. Now, of course, back then, the president didn't necessarily pick a running mate. The convention did. But the war was ending. 
the business of Reconstruction was going to be at hand. And Johnson was the only Southern senator who had remained loyal to the Union. During the war, Lincoln had appointed him as the uh, military governor of Tennessee. Johnson had remained faithful to the Union in the face of death threats and everything else. And I think Lincoln's reasoning was that Johnson would be a goodwill ambassador to the South once the war was over, uh, that he would uh, you know, be the face of a Republican administration. In fact, they didn't even, if you go to the 1864 campaign literature, they didn't call it the Republican Party because that name was anathema in the South. They called themselves the National Union Party. And Johnson kind of would have been a front man to, to take the administration's case into the South, ideally. But of course, uh, Lincoln didn't plan on getting killed a month into a second term. And suddenly the whole thing was dropped in Johnson's lap and he was woefully inadequate to the task. So almost any vice president would have been a better choice if he had kept Hannibal Hamlin on board, if he had chosen someone like Seward, his secretary of state, or or really almost anyone. But uh, while I understood the reasons for wanting to put a Southerner on the ticket, bad idea. Or at least <laughs> that particular Southerner was a very bad idea. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. So I'm curious, by what criteria do you rate the president? How, how do you come up with your uh, Well, I think obviously vision, the ability to unite people behind a common agenda, the ability to appoint capable subordinates and manage them well enough that they don't wind up running the show in your place, and also the good that they did the country. You know, what shape did they leave the country in compared to what they found it in? That's a, a huge criteria, just as the criteria for judging a terrible president is uh, how badly did they damage the country they were elected to lead. Um, you know, Washington, in my mind, is a close second to Lincoln because, first of all, he had to create the presidency. I mean, if you read the Constitution, the presidency, Article 2 that describes the presidency is a page and a half long. And a good chunk of that is, you know, outlining the process by which we select our presidents, the whole electoral college thing. Uh, and so really the presidency itself is a one-page job description. And Washington had to take this conceptual idea from a piece of paper and turn it into a working office. And, you know, selecting the first cabinet, uh, determining even little stuff like what the president would be called in conversation. Some wanted a, a big fancy title. Washington said, Mr. President will be just fine. And then most importantly, stepping down at the end of two terms, letting it be known that he was done. I thought I turned that off. I give up. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but, you know, stepping down at the end of two terms set an example that all other presidents honored up till Franklin Roosevelt. And then after Roosevelt's time was actually written into our constitution permanently. And that's, you know, that was huge uh, because in everything Washington did, he set the standard for all who followed. And he also had some very disparate talents in his cabinet. I mean, Hamilton and Jefferson were just mortal enemies. The one line in the musical Hamilton that always makes me laugh is when uh, Washington calls Hamilton in and Hamilton says, I don't know what you heard, sir, but whatever it is, Jefferson started it. That's actually <laughs> not too far from accurate in the relationship between those two men. Um, and yet Washington got the best out of both of them. And that is so important. And something I talk about with my students sometimes is the importance of a leader knowing what you don't know. 
You know, I mean, you have to know where your strengths are and be confident in your strengths and your abilities and in your knowledge. But at the same time, knowing what you don't know and getting solid light for Washington as a Virginia planter, he was good at a lot of things, but Virginia planters as a class were terrible at finance. Most of them, you know, you look at Jefferson and Madison died horrendously in debt because slavery, despite its outward appeal, was not a profitable system. I mean, it was, but your profit was measured in land and slaves, not in money. Most of them didn't have a lot of cash on him because it was a cash poor system. Washington, you know, Hamilton had worked for him for seven years during the American Revolution. And one thing Washington had been impressed with was Hamilton's understanding of interest and banks and financing and loans and all of these things. And so when he picked a secretary of the treasury, Hamilton was his natural choice. And Hamilton was a genius. I mean, he, America, Europe had cut up our credit cards. And yet within a year or two of Hamilton's system being put into place, our notes would carry in any bank in the world. He began a process by which we could pay down our national debt. Uh, you know, he was really a remarkable, remarkable figure for his time. And you know, a good leader knows how to pick someone who is strong in the areas where he is weak and relies on that person's advice and yet at the same time doesn't let them dominate him. And that's where Washington was really strong. Okay. Well, one thing I want to add here, so before we go any further, I want to address something that I saw online after your first appearance when we discussed your book, President Hamilton. Mm -hmm. um, several people were under the impression that Hamilton would not have been eligible to run because he was born in a British province. Well, I got news for those people. Eight of the first nine United States presidents were born as British citizens. Martin Van Buren was the first American-born president. That's the true. The natural-born citizens clause was for future presidents, Otherwise, the United States wouldn't have had an eligible candidate until 35 years after the Declaration of Independence. That's very true. Um, and it even says in the language of the Constitution or a citizen at the time of the adoption of this Constitution uh, to make sure that that was uh, in there. But, yeah, that was uh, I encounter that sometimes when I'm out doing book signings. Well, Hamilton couldn't have run for president. He wasn't a natural born citizen. I'm like, well, you got to read the Constitution, the rest <laughs> of that clause. Yes. All the details are important. Okay, so let's, let's get back to the questions of, of today for President's sure. Day. Even if a disastrous decision defines a president's narrative, do you think that also defines that president's quality? And let me give you an example of something I'm thinking of. History remembers Richard Nixon because of a specific event, but he did a lot of other things that would be considered good under, under most circumstances. So how, how do you define a president's um, quality? Boy, that's, and again, it comes back to how badly did he damage the country he was supposed to lead. Nixon is, Nixon's a big, fat, complicated ball of wax, to be honest, because the man <laughs> was brilliant in many ways. He had some remarkable achievements, not just in foreign policy, but in domestic policy as well. I mean, we wouldn't have the Environmental Protection Agency if it weren't for Richard Nixon. And I know people get fed up with EPA regulations and all of that, but the truth is I'm old enough to remember the 70s. We had rivers catching fire. That's how polluted <laughs> this country was. And the EPA has done so much to clean our water and our air. And that was thanks to Nixon. The Endangered Species Act was signed into law by Nixon. He is also, this is something most people don't know, the only American president or well, the only American in history to be nominated for national office five times, other than Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, those two share that category. Uh, and, you know, Nixon was 
nominated for vice president twice and won in the 50s, nominated for president and lost in 1960, then nominated for the presidency and won in both 68 and in 72. Ironically, in 72, by a landslide, enormous electoral and popular vote win, and then turns around and within two years squanders all the goodwill and just basically destroyed himself politically, made himself so toxic. Uh, you know, he's still remembered as the only president to ever resign in disgrace. And so much of that was just due to his own paranoia, his own persecution complex. Uh, Nixon was, uh, you know, he always thought they were out to get him. And sometimes that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, the sad part is, you know, the essence of Watergate, when you boil it all down, is Nixon cheated to win an election, he was already going to win. I mean, there was no way McGovern was going to win in 72. <laughs> and yet Nixon, it, yeah, it wasn't enough for him to win. He wanted a landslide. And so, yeah, he cheated. He wiretapped his opponents. Uh, he had a whole dirty trick squad out there. And with the Watergate break in, it all came home to roost. And, you know, he, he undoubtedly would have been impeached and removed had he not stepped down when he did. So in the end, it was the only option he had, but I do think that's why I don't put him in my bottom five, even though Watergate and all the crimes associated with it were terrible. And certainly Nixon broke the law and needed to resign. And if he had refused to resign, the Senate would have been completely in the right if they had voted to impeach and remove it. And yet at the same time, before that horrible year, Nixon made some really good decisions in terms of foreign policy, opening up China, beginning arms talks with the Soviet Union, getting us out of Vietnam. I know he didn't do it fast enough for the anti-war crowd, but nonetheless, he got us out of there. And so, you know, Nixon uh, had a lot of achievements to kind of balance. So, like I said, in the end, he's a bit of a mixed bag. You know, on the other hand, you've got several presidents. Uh, you know, you had the Buchanans and the Pierces and the Andrew Johnsons who were just awful all around. Uh, and you've got some who meant well and did some good, and yet by their own misjudgments and inexperience wound up making some things worse. You know, I put uh, Jimmy Carter in that category, an absolutely admirable human being. His post-presidency was truly remarkable, and yet he was not a successful president. Probably not as terrible as we were led to believe in the campaign of 1980. More than anything, he was an unlucky president, and that's something people don't take into account sometimes some presidents are lucky and some presidents aren't you know carter was an unlucky president herbert hoover was an unlucky president and some presidents just have really good luck uh you know uh, uh you look at bill clinton you know whatever you think of him as a person he came in at a time of peace and prosperity the cold war was over we had remember the peace dividend from closing all the bases and, and kind of ending all that Cold War arms race stuff. And so for the only time in my life, we had a balanced budget the last years of the Clinton presidency. Uh, you know, like I said, you can say what you like about the man as a person, but as a president, uh, he was lucky. You know, what they call him the Teflon president. And, and that was <laughs> kind of like Reagan, too. You know, Reagan was a good president. He made some missteps, no doubt. I still consider him one of the best in my lifetime. Uh, but Reagan also... He had this incredible charisma and nothing stuck to him. You know, even his worst mistakes, the whole Iran-Contra thing, in the end, the, the, the people as a whole were far more forgiving towards Ronald Reagan than they were towards somebody like Herbert Hoover. Uh, you know, and Hoover was a perfectly decent human being, wonderful humanitarian, horribly unlucky president, and 
completely unsuited to the time he was in. And, and that's the other thing. Some people are just made for the moment. You know, I think Lincoln was made for the moment of the Civil War. Franklin Roosevelt, you know, uh, something he and Churchill talked about. They were both crafted for the moment they found themselves in. And I don't know that anyone else could have led the United States or Great Britain more effectively. And, and they knew they were living in history. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite uh, telegrams uh, from between them, uh, at the end of one of his long telegrams to Churchill, uh, Roosevelt signed off and said, by the way, Winston, it's fun being in the same century with you. <laughs> and that's actually a good segue to my next question. Speaking of centuries, the 19th century, after Grant, there seemed to be a string of what I would call weak presidents. Definitely. Well, there were several what, reasons. What, what caused that? Uh, some of it was Lincoln had accumulated a lot of power into the executive branch during the Civil War. I mean, he had to. He was trying to save the country. And, and so he accumulated and wielded more power than any president before him. And so there was going to be a natural swing of the pendulum, regardless of who followed him in office. But as it turned out, it was Andrew Johnson, who was dreadful and unlucky. And Johnson tried to impose his will on Congress and failed. He became incredibly unpopular. And, and Andrew Johnson, Congress rolled over him like a, a steamroller over a grape. Okay, I mean, they uh, they overrode every one of his vetoes. Uh, they did not support his attempt to bring the South in without enacting civil rights legislation. Uh, you know, the 14th and 15th Amendments he was opposed to, and they pushed those things along anyway. And then they impeached him and came within one vote of stripping him of office. And from what I have read and understand, there was kind of an unwritten deal made there that Johnson would roll over and quit obstructing Congress, and in exchange, they would let him finish out his term. Then you got Grant, and Grant viewed the had a different view of the president. You know, not so much a dynamic executive as a bureaucrat who would you know carry out the laws Congress passed. But Grant kind of gave Congress the lead on things, and that kind of tailed over into the Gilded Age. And, and there were a number of factors. One was once Reconstruction was over and the southern states came back in, the balance of power between the two parties was so narrow. The south was solid red, the northeast was solid blue. Every state, you could predict which way they were going to go in every election. And really, there were only three swing states. There was uh, Ohio, there was New York, and Indiana. Those were the ones that might swing either way in nearly every presidential race. That's why there were so many presidents from Ohio and New York during this time. And because the balance was so thin, bold leadership rocks the boat. When you know that the election is going to turn on one or two percent of the popular vote, you don't want to rock the boat. You want to go along to get along. And also there were other factors. You know, before the Civil War, the best men in the country went into politics. After the Civil War, the best and brightest went into business, and the second-rate men went into politics. So there were a number of things that kind of kept. And truthfully, after Reconstruction was ended and the attempt to introduce civil rights for African Americans in the South failed, ideologically, the parties weren't that far apart. And so the elections were more about scandal and personality than they were about substantive differences. And so you had a succession of, of weak, mediocre presidents. I mean, you know, these are the guys that people fail presidential trivia quizzes on. Rutherford Hayes, Chester A. Arthur, uh, you know, James Garfield, uh, Grover Cleveland. Uh, you know, now they have... Uh, 
they have their uh, their moments, but it's just not an era of strong presidents. And it took a young, dynamic, fresh personality and a new century to inject life back into the presidency. And that came with, with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, of course, who is another one of my all-time favorites. Is he in your top five? Oh, yeah. Uh, I never did finish off my list, did I? Yeah. Uh, Lincoln, Washington, FDR, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And then fifth place is kind of a toss-up between Eisenhower and Truman. Uh, I think either one of them, they're they're very close both in policy and in in personality in some ways. And I find it really interesting because those those are the top six in nearly every historian's poll What's amazing to me is that three out of the top six presidents, as rated by, say, the C-SPAN poll, served back to back to back. It's like the mid-20th century was the high point of presidential leadership in America, where you had FDR and then Truman and then Eisenhower and all of them serving multiple terms and leading America, you know, transforming America from this rather sleepy, isolationist, backwater power mired in the Great Depression to a global powerhouse and the literal and figurative leader of the free world. And, you know, that was really done by three men. Wow. So you mentioned they all served multiple terms. Who do you think was the most cons- con- consequential? I can't even say the word. The most consequential one term president. Oh, uh, that's actually easy. Um, James K. Polk, the one nobody has ever heard of. Uh, the man, he made six campaign promises and he kept every one of them. Uh, the all, as far as I know, he's the only president in American history to keep every campaign promise he made because he said if he was elected, first, he was going to lower the tariff. Secondly, he was going to restore the independent treasury. Third, he was going to annex Texas. Uh, fourth, he was going to buy California for, or otherwise acquire California from Mexico. And fifth, he was going to add the Oregon Territory to the United States. And his last promise that was that he would do it all in one term and not seek re-election. And doggone it, the sucker did it. That cost wow. us a war, probably one of the most unjust wars in American history, the Mexican-American War which ironically is also the best fought war in American history. I mean, uh, that was one of those conflicts that the more I study it, the more amazed I am. Mexico at that time had been fighting civil wars among themselves for 30 years. They had a large, experienced army. Many professional generals from Europe came to serve in the Mexican army because Europe at that time didn't have a lot of big wars going on. Uh, And America came in, and despite the fact that nearly every major battle was on foreign soil, despite the fact that we were far from home and outnumbered in every battle. America didn't lose a single battle that whole war. We launched the first full-on amphibious invasion in our nation's history, landed in Veracruz, fought our way 200 miles across hostile territory, uh, foiled a couple of planned ambushes by Santa Ana's forces, captured Mexico City, and uh, Santa Ana was toppled. The Mexican Congress ceded California and the entire Western territories, which is New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Nevada. All of that in a, in a war that lasted just a little over a year. It was an incredible achievement. Like I said, even wow. if it was a rather unjust war, it was still a remarkably successful one. And then Polk also negotiated with the British uh, to acquire the Oregon country. And Texas had actually been annexed during the lame duck period right before his uh, taking the oath of office, but as a direct result of his election. 
outgoing president, John Tyler, wanted some legacy to be remembered by. So when he saw the way the election went, he said, hey, the people have spoken. The candidate who favored annexing Texas won. Let's go ahead and do it. They did it by joint resolution of Congress. Okay. So let's step outside just a little bit of of policy and deal with um, personal attributes, personality, if you don't mind. Um, So which president do you say, would you say had the best sense of humor? Oh, goodness. Lincoln loved jokes. He and it's kind of funny. He wrestled with depression, but he often found his way out of it by making other people laugh. He had a huge reserves of jokes and funny stories uh, and uh, just loved making people laugh. He was tremendously entertaining. Some of his cabinet appreciated it. Some did not. That's one thing that I thought the Lincoln movie uh, got right. Uh, when uh, Secretary of War Stanton, Lincoln goes into telling the funny story about Ethan Allen and Stanton just storms out of the room. I cannot stand to listen to another one of your stories right now. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you another one now. He was crude and, and sometimes a bit cruel in his practical jokes, but LBJ loved uh, a good joke and a good prank. And uh, he had a car that was rigged up with a snorkel that actually doubled as a motorboat. And he would take people for rides around the LBJ ranch, and there was a hill that dropped down straight towards the lake and then the road turned and ran parallel to the lake and he'd get going down that hill and then he'd say, I got no brakes, I got no brakes and be like (laughs) pumping at the brake and the passenger in the car would absolutely be freaking out and uh, then the car would plunge into the water and go chug, chug, chug it across the surface of the lake and uh, it was a boat, you know, it was a car that doubled as a boat but it he terrified a couple of journalists that way um, <laughs> and Hubert Humphrey as well. All right. Let's, how about athletics? Who was the best athlete? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, and I know you don't really see it in his pictures, but uh, Roosevelt loved to box. He was a superb equestrian. Cross-country hiking was one of his favorite things. Uh, when he was president, you know, traditionally – when you come to dinner at the White House, you wear tucks and tails and the ladies wear formal gowns. Uh, well, they quickly learned when TR was president, you better show up in hiking boots and a pair of sturdy khakis because as soon as he was done with supper, he'd say, oh, that was bully. Now let's go for a walk. And his walks were often 10 miles or more, climbing cliffs, going through creeks. I mean, uh, and, and people panted and struggled to catch up. One ambassador asked to be reassigned because he was 72 years old and simply could not keep up with Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, one time, a, a cavalry officer wrote a letter to Theodore Roosevelt uh, complaining because his commanding officer had made him ride on horseback 25 miles in one day. And he said that was just unfair and no person should be asked to do something like that. Well, Roosevelt hopped on his horse and rode 50 miles in one day, pretty much obliterating anyone's right to complain about anything ever again. I'm sorry. I thought (laughs) to turn those notifications off, but they keep digging. So my apologies to your audience. Um, Another time, uh, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world uh, was brought to the White House for a congratulation on his championship. Roosevelt, who at the time was like 46 years old, said, oh, I love boxing in college. Let's go a few rounds. And he strapped on his gloves and climbed into the ring with the guys where he practiced boxing with his sons. And, uh, you know, the champ was going to go easy on him because this is the president of the United States and he's not a young man anymore. Roosevelt clocked him so hard he got mad and punched back full strength. Uh, 
and <laughs> it blinded the president in one eye. And he did not tell the champ about it because he didn't want the man to feel bad for, for blinding the president. Roosevelt never got his full sight back in that eye. Uh, but, uh, wow. you know, that was the kind of guy he was. He was incredibly athletic. Um, Lincoln isn't really remembered for this, but he was extraordinarily strong. One of the things that he did, you know, Lincoln was in his 50s when he was at the White House. You know, he was around our age. He would take an axe by the very end of the handle and hold it straight out from his body parallel with the ground and hold it like that for a full minute. And he would challenge the soldiers to try it, and none of them could do it. I can tell you, I've tried it. I can barely get that thing level for about five or ten <laughs> seconds before my arm drops. Uh, so, you know, Lincoln was an enormously strong man. Um, Gerald Ford, you know, he was a – it's kind of funny because Saturday Night Live lampooned him for being a klutz. Yes. Uh, but the truth is Gerald Ford is one of the most athletic presidents in our history. He loved skiing. He was a college football player, formal naval officer, liked to start the morning by swimming about 20 laps in the White House pool. Uh, so, uh, you know, he was a, a, a pretty athletic president as well. He's actually the first one who came to my mind when I thought about this question. He also played football at the University of Michigan. It's true and was quite good at it. All right, so I've got another list here. Um, we talked about your five favorite presidents or the five be best. How about the five worst, not counting the oh. 21st century? Okay, yeah, yeah. Leave, leaving <laughs> current, uh, current options out of the picture, nearly everyone concedes James Buchanan is the worst. Mainly his utter failure to lead the country at a time it was crying out for strong leadership, his refusal to do anything against uh, the slave states, and then allowing, in the middle of the secession crisis, his secretary of war, who was a Southerner, to transfer a lot of the nation's weapons into Southern forts and arsenals where the Confederates would take them and, and arm their forces with them. I mean, Buchanan was just singularly useless. Uh, Franklin Pierce spent the majority of his presidency drunk. Now, give him his due, he was mourning the death of his 10-year-old son. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Franklin Pierce was an exceptionally ineffective president. Uh, and then also uh, Andrew Johnson. Uh, we've already talked about him. I think he would make the bottom three. Now, beyond that, uh, Warren G. Harding is generally rated kind of low. Uh, Hoover, in a different time, I think Hoover might have been a better president. But he was woefully unsuited to the moment in which he found himself um, and uh, then Benjamin Harrison, the second of the Harrison presidents, he was uh, uh, just didn't accomplish a whole lot except to blow the budget surplus. Uh, he came into office with an enormous surplus and wasted nearly all of it. And I say wasted it on veterans pensions. People will raise an eyebrow because veterans pensions are a good thing. But the truth is, at the time he took office, veterans of the Civil War were already had pensions coming. Uh, but he literally doubled their pensions in nothing more than a cynical effort to buy votes and also gave pensions to men who never fought. Um, it was, uh, you know, that one guy claimed a pension because he was on his way to enlist to fight in the war where the horse threw him and he broke his back and was bedridden for the next three years. But he would have served if he hadn't fallen <laughs> off his horse. And so he got a Civil War veterans pension. And also granted pensions to the widows of Civil War veterans in perpetuity. Matter of fact, uh, 
little cool bit of trivia here, not entirely presidential, but still interesting. The last Civil War widow, the last widow of a Civil War veteran, died in December of 2021. They have seen that. I just really saw that recently. Yeah, I did uh, see that recently. It's it's crazy to think about stuff like that. When and thinking about the grandson of John Tyler, he's got a yes, grandson who's still alive that. today yeah, in Virginia. Tyler is still alive. Uh, I was actually teaching my eighth graders about President Tyler today, and he's a unique character. We can spend a few minutes on him. He was elected by the Whig Party. He was actually a lifelong Democrat, but he had stormed out of the Democratic Party over a tiff with Andrew Jackson, and the Whigs, hoping to pull a few Democrats onto the ticket, uh, announced him as uh, Harrison's running mate, and then William Henry Harrison gets elected and dies a month later. Uh, the shortest term of any president. And uh, some historians' polls put him near the bottom for that reason. I don't think that's entirely fair because he was in office for one month and he was busy dying most of that time. You know, <laughs> he didn't have a chance to get much done. But Tyler comes in. He takes up first. a lot of time. <laughs> well, yeah, especially pneumonia. <laughs> uh, but uh, first of all, no president had died in office at that point at all. And the Constitution says, should the president die or resign or be removed, the powers and duties of the presidency shall devolve onto the vice president. It doesn't say the vice president shall become president. So they weren't sure if to call him interim president or acting president. But because Harrison was ill for several weeks, Tyler had been thinking it through. He had consulted a couple of legal experts. And when he got word that President Harrison had died, he took the oath of office, administered by a federal judge, and then he uh, uh, just demanded to be called Mr. President. And people grumbled about it. They called him his accidency and other such things. (laughs) But in the end, it stuck. And then in the 25th Amendment, it was written into law. But he was the first president... uh, to, to assume the office for the vice presidency by the death of his predecessor. Then his wife died while he was president, and he became the first president to get married while in office. And the 50-year-old John Tyler married a 23-year-old uh, and proceeded to have a second family of eight children with her. The youngest of those boys was born in 1870, two years, or 18, uh Beg your pardon. No, it was born in 1860, two years before Tyler died, when Tyler was 70 years old. And um, that young man, kind of similar to his dad, you know, he uh, married, had a family. His wife died when he was in his 50s. He remarried, started a second family, and two of those children born in the 1930s, one of them still alive to this day. And uh, uh, one of them passed away three or four years ago. I know it wasn't that long ago that Tyler had two grandchildren still living, but in three generations, the Tyler family has lived in the administration of every president since George Washington. That's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. I was, I mentioned that um, the the Tyler family in, in my first book and they went three generations in a span that my family has gone eight generations. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, from my, yeah, my, my great great grandfather to my granddaughter. So there's eight generations oh, of people in yeah, Texas. That would probably be the same for me. Um, you know, at least at least six or seven. I mean, I, myself and my dad were both born when our fathers were fairly old, but still, that only takes you to, you know, my dad was born in 1926, uh, my grandfather in 1889, and Tyler had still been gone nearly 40 years at that point. 
so yeah, it's just it's really interesting. Um, anyway, yeah, so that's uh, John Tyler's really interesting character. All right, do you think there are any presidents in the 20th century who could survive the type of scrutiny that presidents in the 21st century receive? You know, I mean, Truman was an incredibly straight arrow. Um, I think that he would stand up well. Um, and of course, he also, if something was nobody's business, he would tell them it was not their business. Um, George H.W. Bush was a man of great dignity and a family man. I mean, uh, I guess if you dig enough, you can find something to criticize about almost anyone if you go back far enough. But that being said, um, at the same time, baggage doesn't seem to be as big a deal as it once was. I mean, you know, uh, you look at the baggage carried by some of our more recent presidents uh, and, and even, you know, going kind of up to the tail end of where we're talking about Bill Clinton had a remarkable amount of personal baggage, yet he was elected twice and left office with an approval rating of 60% after becoming the first president since Andrew Johnson to go through an impeachment trial. You know, I'll tell you what, you know, when you look at America's presidents as a group, it's a remarkably eclectic collection, some incredibly brilliant men. I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson, could literally write in Greek with one hand and Latin at the other at the same time. And besides being a politician, he was a botanist. He was the father of American archaeology. He was fascinated with prehistoric animals. I mean, the man was a walking encyclopedia. Um, you know, you look at uh, uh, people, you know, in James Garfield, uh, you know, he was one that didn't get a lot of mention because he died, was assassinated and only served in office about six or seven months, but uh, he had a fascinating mind. Theodore Roosevelt, you know, we think of him as a man of action, and, and he was. He was the only president to win the Medal of Honor and the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, but he also wrote 18 books and hundreds of articles, many of them quite scholarly. Uh, his Naval History of the War of 1812 is still considered one of the authoritative works on that subject. Um, and then mm. you get some from unlikely backgrounds. I mean, Harry Truman, a farmer's son from Missouri, and yet he forged NATO. He came up with the Marshall Plan. He led us out of World War II. And he was another example of how current popular opinion isn't always a measure of historical greatness. Truman left office with an approval rating in the mid-30s, and yet now most historians put him in the top six of American presidents. Um, and, and his leadership in that post-war era was, was nothing short of brilliant. Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower is another one. Of course, he was a five-star general, but he also became a president known for his aversion to war. He ended the only war he inherited, and he didn't start any more. And he probably saved the world from a second nuclear conflict two or three times because, you know, since we've never used the bomb since World War II, we've gotten used to the idea that is something we don't use. That idea wasn't there in the 50s. There were a number of crises where the Joint Chiefs of Staff first instinct was, let's nuke them. And Eisenhower would always be, and eh, not so fast. Let's try to find another way out of this. Uh, and you know, he is another one who, the longer he's gone, the more we seem to appreciate it. Other presidents, their stars kind of fall from the firmament. Woodrow Wilson, you know, my history books when I was in high school ranked him as one of the greatest presidents. And now 
largely, frankly, because of his virulent racism. Uh, his star has fallen greatly, and, and most historians rank him only slightly above average. Uh, Harding, uh, Warren G. Harding, tremendously popular president while he was in office, and yet he's consistently ranked in the bottom 10, and some people even put him in the bottom five. Um, so I, that's one reason I always say, you know, that current standing in public opinion is just not a measure of historical greatness. And it takes decades to get a true perspective on a presidency. When you were talking about Jefferson and his various interests and abilities, it made me think about somebody I mentioned the first time we talked. And that's um, Jonathan Edwards. I, I think he would have made a fascinating president. Obviously, he died before. Um, yeah, he's a little bit too a little bit too early. He was born in 1703, uh, three years younger than Franklin. So he was yeah. he was he was born a little bit too early. But I think he would have been a fascinating character. He his abilities were were on par with with Jefferson. Um, his intellectual abilities. He went to Princeton when he was like 12 years old or something. Wow, of course, uh, uh, or, yeah, or dark, dark, dark don't Know a ton about Edwards, but he's one of those I'd like to read up on a little bit more. I, uh, you know, I highly recommend it. Presidents we never had. Um, obviously, of course, I wrote a book about what a president Alexander Hamilton might have made. But Henry Clay ran four times and never made it. And one of the deep ironies, Clay was twice approached about serving as vice president. Both times he refused it because it is really a kind of powerless, inconsequential office. And both times the men who approached him, William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor, died in office. And mm, Clay so could have become been president, president twice wow. then, uh, but he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to be elected to the office. He didn't want the vice presidency. Um, you know, he was another one that uh, might have been a remarkable president given the chance. All right. One more thing I want to mention about Edwards. Back in the, I guess, late 90s, early 2000, I was really fascinated by him and read lots of stuff on him. And he and, and Franklin were contemporaries and, and in some ways they were rivals. They were certainly intellectual rivals. And Franklin, one of the things that he's known for saying is God helps those who help themselves. That was actually in response to something that Edwards had said, like uh, talking about prayer and, and God helping those who, who ask for help. And then Franklin's response was God helps those who help themselves. And, and one last thing during that time, I was so fascinated by Jonathan Edwards that when we had our, our youngest child in 99, if if the baby had been a boy, I was going to name him Jonathan Edwards. Obviously, my last name is already Edwards, so that part of it was easy. So I was going to name him Jonathan. But it turned out to be a girl, and Jonathan would not have been a good name for a girl. No. So, no, we went with Eden instead. Ah. <laughs> All right, so uh, last last thing here I've got for you. We've already talked about a lot of presidential trivia, but I'll give you a chance to, to talk about a little bit more. One of, the, one of the really fascinating things I've found, and maybe you want to talk about this some more, is that are the coincidences between Lincoln and, and Kennedy. Do, do you have any of those off the top of your head, like Lincoln being oh, killed at the fourth theater? Mean, uh, let's see. You know, first, uh, there was Kennedy was born in 1909. Lincoln was born in 1809. Uh, both assassins were Southerners. Both assassins were known by all three of their names. Uh, also, um, Let's see, both presidents were deeply concerned with civil rights. 
Uh, both were assassinated after serving one just over a full term and one just under a full term. Um, and of course, uh, we know that uh, Kennedy had a secretary named Evelyn Lincoln, and I've heard there was a presidential secretary working for Lincoln that was named Kennedy, but that, I think, is, uh, that may be a fabrication. I've never run across the name in any of the Lincoln biographies I've read. Um, you know, um, in Lincoln's case, he was shot in a theater, and the assassin was apprehended in a barn. Uh, and then in Kennedy's case, he was shot from a warehouse and the assassin was apprehended in a theater. So there was a theater involved in both cases. I was trying to think what were some of the other parallels. Uh, I, it's been a while since I've looked at that list. Yeah. And of course, people add kind of a little funny, humorous ones like, you know, well, you know, a week before the assassination, uh, Lincoln was in Monroe, Maryland, and uh, then a week before the assassination, <laughs> Kennedy was with Marilyn Monroe, except that's actually, it's funny, but it's made up. It's uh, Marilyn Monroe was actually dead by that point. But, uh, and I don't know, the whole story about Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe, I've had some biographers insist that it's true. Some insist that they never actually got together. So who knows? Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's one of those interesting little parallel things that, uh, and like I said, I've seen the list, but it's been a while. Yeah, the, the same here. I remember reading it in, in like late elementary school or something when I started becoming a history nerd, and I didn't even realize it at the time. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me on tonight. I really have enjoyed this right. time. I appreciate you being here. So just to let my guests know, um, our guest today for the special President's Day episode has been presidential, presidential historian and author, Lewis Ben Smith. So again, thanks, um, Lewis, for joining me. I, I know you've got some things you got to get done this evening. So thanks for taking some time out this evening. All right. I appreciate it very much. Good to be on your show again. Yes. I'll, I'll talk to you again soon. Well, that's it for this episode of Stories from Real Life. Join us again next time for another great storytelling journey. Until then. Don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.